0: This is an RNZ podcast.
1: In the 19th century, Aotearoa shifted from a population which was virtually 100% Māori to one which was nearly 95% European. That shift was driven by a massive influx of British migrants to New Zealand. And this first generation of Pakeha New Zealanders has shaped Kiwi identity ever since.
0: These guys are often romanticised as pioneers bringing civilisation to a wild frontier. But as tough as they were, that's far from the whole story. The continuing arrival of more and more settlers put pressure on Māori to hand over more and more land a pressure that was often disastrous for Tangata whenua.
1: I'm Lee and McLaughlin. And I'm William Ray. This is the Aotearoa History Show. We arrange ourselves without fear. Besides Britain. Where she goes, we go. Where she stands, we stand. Hillary has succeeded in conquering Mount Everest.
0: New Zealand in front. New Zealand wins. It's a real shambles here at Rugby Park, Hamilton. Red smoke bombs being thrown by the demonstrators. We are marching to Parliament and no more land to be sold. New Zealand's early colonists were mostly young, working class and overwhelmingly male. In 1873, men made up 70% of the adult Pākehā population, and these guys left a lasting impact on New Zealand's culture.
1: We all have an image in our minds of the classic Kiwi bloke. It's a stereotype you see in ads for beer and utes and barbecues, as well as plenty of books and movies. A rugged individualist, strong and silent – Social historian Jock Phillips argues this image has its roots in what he calls the crew culture of early colonial New Zealand. These crews were teams of diggers, miners, shearers and bushmen. It was really hard work and these guys took pride in that fact. Here's how a settler called E.W. Elkington put it. There is something grand in felling by your own exertions, a giant cowry tree that towers overhead and spreads its great branches right and left. To see it totter and come down with a thundering crash, burying perhaps a dozen smaller ones in its fall, and then to
0: be able to look at it lying at your feet and say, Alone, I did it. It makes the lifeblood cheer through my veins. These men were bound together by their work. They had to live together for months at a time in small, self-sufficient, all-male groups. They rejected the rigid class structures of England. In their world, anyone who worked hard, drank hard and looked out for their mates could feel a sense of belonging.
1: There's a lot to admire about these early pioneers, but some bad stuff too. Men were discouraged from showing emotion. If you were feeling sad or lonely, you didn't talk about it. This attitude is still strong in New Zealand men today, and sometimes that can be a problem. People have argued it's part of why our mental health and domestic violence rates are so high compared to other countries.
0: Many men were doing the same work as E.W. Elkington, clearing native forests to make space for those white, fluffy money bags we call sheep. Between 1840 and 1860, 20% of New Zealand's bush was cut down or burned. Then the government built new railways and roads, making it more profitable to export native timber. So the deforestation accelerated into the 1900s.
1: the decline in bird numbers was already obvious to settlers in the 1860s, but the real collapse began after 1880. Around this time, the government introduced ferrets, stoats and weasels to control rabbit populations, despite dire warnings from scientists of what those predators would do to our native birds.
0: The most famous loss was the huia, a bird considered especially sacred by Māori. The last living huiya was spotted in 1907 and today we only know what it sounded like thanks to this recording of Henare Hamana, a Ngāti Porou man who had learned to imitate the huiya's call as a young boy. The huia wasn't the only bird that went extinct in these years. We also lost the laughing owl and the South Island kōkako. Other species like the takahe and kakapo slipped to the very brink. I could go on but I think you get the point. Lots more species would have gone extinct if the government hadn't set up the first few predator free island sanctuaries. The government also created some forest reserves on the mainland. Those are the last places you can still find Aotearoa's original bush today.
1: So, having done all that hard work clearing the land, these men now wanted to buy some. And the government wanted that too. But they ran into a problem. There wasn't any land for sale. The government had stolen, confiscated, or bought lots of land from Māori already, but pretty much all that land had gone into the hands of a small group of extremely rich people who ran gigantic sheep farms. They used to be called sheep barons. Eventually the government broke up those big farming monopolies, but first they went back to their usual method of getting more land, taking it from Māori.
0: Māori were still living communally within their hapū. There was some new stuff like Christian churches and schools, but by and large life was the same as it had been for hundreds of years. Some had been pushed off their land by the New Zealand wars, but most were still living on the same land that had sustained them for generations, tending to gardens, collecting kaimwana.
1: But that was about to change. In 1865, the government made another big play for Māori land. And to do this, it created a new legal system. The Native Land Court. Attorney General Henry Sewell said the goal of the Native Land Court was, quote, The detribalisation of the Māori. To destroy, if it were possible, the principle of communism upon which their social system is based, and which stands as a barrier in the way of all attempts to amalgamate the Maori race into our social and political system. If you're wondering why the government was so keen to destroy the Maori social system, Sewell said it was... To bring the great bulk of the lands in the Northern Ireland within the reach of colonisation. This sounds pretty brutal today, and let's be clear, opening up more land for settlers was pretty much a universal goal for the government. But to Sewell's way of thinking, assimilation would empower Māori. Sewell had been involved in colonial politics from the very beginning. He was our first premier and a fan of Maori self self-government. He twice tried and failed to create what he called a native council, answerable to the Crown rather than Parliament. He opposed the New Zealand wars and wanted Māori to retain a portion of every land sale, and even resigned as Attorney General over land confiscations. It's fair to say that colonial politics was complex – And Pākehā certainly weren't all of one mind. But the end result for Māori was the same. Growing pressure to sell their land.
0: New Zealand now had a cash-based economy. If a Māori farmer needed a new tool, they couldn't barter for it anymore. They needed money. The only way to get money was to sell land. But according to tikanga Māori, land was held collectively by everyone in their iwi or hapu. If this farmer wanted to sell some land, they needed everyone else to agree. And a lot of the time, they didn't agree. For Māori, land is central to identity. Tangata Whenua literally means people of the land.
1: The government saw this kind of collective land ownership as an obstacle, blocking the sale of land to colonists, which brings us back to the Native Land Court. The court's job was basically to decide which groups of Māori owned which areas of land. Sometimes the court's judges carefully considered cases. They asked for evidence of ownership and consulted with Māori experts on tikanga and iwi history before granting ownership rights.
0: But a lot of the time it was just first in, first served. One wānau would race in to register their claim before someone else could get in first and sell their land from under them. For example, you might have a bit of land which supported 100 people, and 99 of them didn't want to sell, but if one did, then everyone was dragged into the court. And on top of that, the court would only recognise 10 owners for a piece of land, so 90 of those 100 people lost any kind of legal right to a say.
1: The court pitted Māori against each other. It undermined the traditional tribal decision-making systems which bound them together, which is exactly what the government wanted. Also, because lots of Māori were new to the whole idea of money, they often had no idea what a fair price was, and this opened them up to a whole lot of dirty tricks. One common one was for a local shopkeeper to sell Māori lots of stuff on credit— Then, in the middle of winter, when those Māori didn't have any spare food to trade, these shopkeepers would demand payment, and the only way to settle the debt was to sell land.
0: The government also convinced Māori to hand over land with promises that they would build roads and schools for Māori to use as compensation, but often those promises were forgotten as soon as the land changed hands. The result of all this was a massive transfer of land from Māori to Pākehā. In 1865, Māori had owned roughly 19 million acres of land, but by 1909, nearly 95% of that land was settled by Pākehā.
1: Plus, it was expensive for Māori to sell land. There were surveying fees, lawyers' fees, agents' fees, transportation and accommodation costs. So basically, it cost them about as much to sell the land as what they got for it.
0: At this point, you might be thinking, well, what the hell happened to the Treaty of Waitangi? Wasn't the whole point of that agreement to protect Māori from unfair land deals? Well, again the colonial government used the legal system to undermine Māori rights.
1: One particularly nasty case involved a Nati Toa rangatira called Wirimu Parata. So Nati Toa had gifted some land to the Anglican Church with a promise it would be used to build a school for Māori. But the church didn't build that school. And the government decided it should still be allowed to keep the land anyway. So in 1877, Wirimu Parata went to the Supreme Court arguing this was a breach of the treaty. But the court decided that the question of whether this land deal breached the treaty was irrelevant. In his infamous court ruling, Justice James Prendergast said, The whole treaty was worthless. A simple nullity which pretended to be an agreement between two nations, but in reality was between a civilised nation and a group of savages. Justice Prendergast said that Māori were Simple barbarians incapable of performing the duties and therefore of assuming the rights of a civilised community. Basically, what the courts said was that Māori were too primitive to understand something as complex as a treaty, which meant the treaty didn't have any legal power. So Toa's legal challenge failed.
0: Without the protection of the treaty, Māori were squeezed into smaller and smaller plots of land, and without land to grow crops or livestock, they slipped into poverty. Disease ripped through impoverished Māori communities. If you were a Māori girl born in the 1890s, you had a 40% chance of dying before your first birthday. By 1896, there were only 42,000 Māori left in New Zealand. That's less than half the pre-1840 population.
1: Most Pākehā politicians weren't worried about any of this. Many believed that Māori were a inferior people who would naturally die out after being contacted by the superior European races. There was a saying in the late 19th century that the duty of Europeans was to, and I quote, smooth the pillow of a dying race. This idea that the decline in Māori population was natural helped Pākehā politicians ignore many of the things which were actually causing the decline in Māori population loss of land. Poverty and unequal access to health care.
0: And as effective as the laws and courts had been, the government was still willing to use force to push Māori off their land. The most famous example was at a village called Parihaka. Parihaka was founded by pacifist Taranaki Māori towards the end of the New Zealand Wars in 1866. The most famous were Te Whiti O Rongomai and Tohu Kakahi. By the end of the 1870s, Parihaka was the largest Māori settlement in the country, drawing in people from a wide range of iwi. It had its own police force and bakery, it it even had a bank. 1,500 people lived there, and they were mostly free of the poverty and disease which devastated Māori in other parts of the country. The town became a rallying point for Māori who opposed unjust confiscations and unfair land sales.
1: But Parihaka sat on top of land which the government had declared confiscated from Māori after the Taranaki Wars ten years earlier. Now the government wanted to hand that land over to white settlers, but Tefiti and Tohu refused to go quietly. Tension built, settlers destroyed fences built for Māori livestock.
0: Parihaka Māori responded with passive resistance, asserting their mana whenua by ploughing up fields and removing survey pegs.
1: The government cracked down. They jailed hundreds of Parihaka Māori without trial, but the community refused to back down.
0: And throughout, they steadfastly refused to turn to violence. As Te Puti said, Though some in darkness of heart, seeing their land ravished, might wish to take arms and kill the aggressors, I say, it must not be. Let not the Parkers think to succeed by reason of their guns. I want not war, but they do. The flashes of their guns have singed our eyelashes, and yet they say they do not want war?
1: Eventually, about 1,500 armed men marched on Parihaka. Riding at the front of the column was the Native Affairs Minister, John Bryce. He was a farmer who'd led troops during the New Zealand wars 12 years earlier.
0: Bryce was expecting armed resistance. He had cannon and water aimed at the town. It could have been a bloodbath. But the leaders of Parihaka decided not to respond with violence. Even as Tohu was being arrested, he told his followers...
1: Even if the bayonet comes to your breast, do not resist. And the people of Parihaka listened. Here's how one police captain described the scene as the troops gathered to storm the village. Their attitude of passive resistance and patient obedience to Te orders was extraordinary. There was a line of children across the entrance to the big village, a kind of singing class directed by an old man with a stick. Even when a mounted officer galloped up and pulled his horse up so short that the dirt from its forefeet spattered the children, they still went on chanting.
0: Things didn't stay peaceful for long. The troops occupied Parihaka and within a few days started looting Māori homes and raping women. A few weeks later, the order was given to destroy the village. The troops burned and pillaged Parihaka and 180 square kilometres of surrounding farmland. Those who remained were left facing starvation and forced to accept work building fences and roads for European farmers on the land the government confiscated as punishment for their so-called rebellion at Parihaka.
1: Some prisoners were kept locked up for years after the raids. They were forced to work in what was effectively slave labour. Several died in jail. The Parihaka Raid is often seen as the ultimate symbol of the Crown's aggression towards Māori, even after open war had ended.
0: In recent years, steps have been taken towards acknowledging the injustice. There have been a series of apologies to iwi affected by the raid and millions of dollars of compensation payments, but those payments don't come anywhere near close to the value of the land confiscated.
1: Pacifist resistance was just one method Māori used in response to the colonial government. Kingitanga continued to use its collective power to negotiate directly with the government to return confiscated land. There was also another new pan-tribal movement called Te which set up a national Māori parliament to counterbalance the Pākehā-dominated colonial government – Te Kotahitanga tried to introduce bills and laws to give Māori more of a voice in the political system. But we should say those efforts were mostly ignored by Pākehā politicians.
0: So some Māori took a different approach and tried working inside the Pākehā system – Apirana Ngata was a significant figure in both movements. He was a member of Kotahitanga, but he also set up a group called the Young Māori Party. Initially, this was a group of old boys of Te Aute College, although the membership expanded later on.
1: The Young Māori Party included people like Maui Pomare and Tirangi Hiroa, who's also known as Peter Buck. These guys were highly respected by many Pākehā as well as their own people – some of these men became Māori MPs and spent their careers lobbying to reform the Native Land Court and for better health and education services for Māori. They had some successes, but it was always hard to overcome resistance from Pākehā politicians.
0: They also did their best to preserve Māori culture, while also encouraging Māori to make use of European innovations. Apirana Ngata put it like this. <laughs> Grow up tender youth in the time of your generation your hand reaching for the Pākehā tools for your physical well-being your heart dedicated to the treasures of your ancestors as a plume upon your head.
1: Ngata and other members of the Young Maori Party tried to find a compromise between Maori demands for independence and Pākehā demands for assimilation. And one way the Young Maori Party tried to gain respect from the colonial government was by encouraging their people to fight alongside Pākehā in a war which claimed more New Zealand lives than any
0: other. Next episode, we'll be telling the story of the First World War.
1: The Aotearoa History Show is a 14-part series made possible by the RNZ New Zealand On Air Digital Innovation Fund. The executive producer is Tim Watkin. It's written and produced by William Ray and co-presented by Lee Marama McLaughlin. The sound engineer is William Saunders and it is directed by Duncan Smith. Historical fact-checking by Basil Keane and the Ministry of Culture and Heritage, especially David Green. Archival audio from Ngā Taonga Sound and Vision – a video version of the Aotearoa History Show is available online via the RNZ web page or on YouTube.
0: Head over to Hulu this March where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie All of Us Strangers starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series We Were the Lucky Ones with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy.